Welcome back. High above the mines here in Bridgepaw on the Bridgepaw Triangle. Boy, we got a good podcast for you today with Mark Krasnow. He's just talking about some really interesting stuff. But first, uh, a couple plugs. Uh, DecibelWines.com, last chance uh, to get in if you're in the U.S. Uh, into the U.S. Wine Club. Uh, we can extend it if you sign up. Uh, we're going to send the wine out next week. So today is Tuesday, the 17th of October. Got a few days. Uh, if you want to sneak in, we can work something out with you, but that's a really good deal. And then, of course, the New Zealand Wine Club. Uh, that's always going every three months. We're sending out wine to you folks. So please check that out. And that's at decibelwines.com, right on the homepage, easy to find. Now, besides that, we've got a, a great event coming up November 16th at Bare Knuckle Barbecue. I'm going to release a new wine that I'm going to call Junta after my great grandmother, great grandparents, uh, their family, the Juntas, who uh, were, you know, simple, straight talking, uh, hardworking Sicilian folks. And uh, this is a pretty much a simple, straightforward summer wine that is a Malbec Nouveau. So uh, light, fruity, unoaked. Yeah, it should be a fun little wine. It's definitely going to be priced right. And what better place to do release a wine like that than at Bare Knuckle Barbecue here in Hastings. So Jimmy and now the new chef, Jonathan, we are going to put together some special dishes for that and just have a party. Just hang outside. We'll have the wines for sale. Uh, obviously, you can buy wines by the glass there and then we're going to have a really good deal for people to do case buys that day uh, we'll have all the rest of the decibel wines up there too but yeah this Junta thing's kind of a new project for me and I just came across the name I've always wanted to name a wine Junta but then I only recently looked up the literal meaning and it means a nice addition uh, you know a nice addition to the family so or sometimes they would give it to a new son in the middle ages in Sicily so Seemed like perfect name for it, again, considering that family. Uh, my grandmother was a pretty straight-up, straight-talking, simple woman. Uh, well, what woman is simple? Who should I say that in this controversial day? But uh, What else? Hawks Bay uh, Wine Awards are tonight. We're going to go with the whole Decibel team, uh, a couple of the growers. The Viognier got a gold medal, so we'll see. Maybe we might get more we'll see we'll go tonight should be a fun night uh, always good to get together with the the industry and have a few drinks and uh, a few laughs there's a lot of characters in Hawks Bay and it's good to get them all under one tent I would say one room but we'll be under a big marquee at the Hawks Bay showgrounds so that should be really fun and if anybody's out there and you know that event comes up next year I do suggest going to it it's really fun it's it's not a cheap ticket but you know it's a formal event and you know, that's the one formal event of the year we have for Hawks Bay wine growers. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. So I uh, hope to see some, some of my mates tonight. Should be a good time. Now on to Kras. Mark Kras now we're going to talk to today. He is uh, not just a fellow American, but he is somebody who I've known for a while. He started teaching at EIT when I was in my third year there of my wine chemistry degree, he came in on the viticulture side. And unfortunately, I never had him as a lecturer, but I became uh, pretty good buddies with him, uh, hanging out here and there. He moved back to New York to go study or to go teach at CIA. He's been a lecturer at UCAL Davis, uh, which is obviously one of the more prestigious wine and viticulture schools in the world. 
and he can't, he's thankfully he's come back to Hawke's Bay he, or, and Marlboro. He kind of bounces between both, and he loves New Zealand to do that. And uh, he's doing. He saw an opportunity, and he saw a need for him uh, for his ideals uh, in uh, water. So we're going to talk a lot about water today, which is a real hot topic. Uh, I think all over New Zealand, but particularly in Hawke's Bay. And I think his research in the coming years, uh, you know, I sort of go into it during the podcast that his research is just so big for what's happening right now with uh, the WCO in Hawke's Bay and the, um, you know, we had some water issues last year and I, I think water's just on everybody's mind right now in Hawke's Bay and he's <clears throat> a guy in our industry who can uh, make some some serious, serious waves, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> Uh, in the industry uh, with his pressure bomb and research and data that he's he's doing and he, he basically goes into all that I don't want to try to explain it without him doing it so the only thing I want to do is plug his beer too he's a he has a little brewery project called crazy bay beers and uh, yeah they're they're good beers man we've I've had them a lot I like the Cherokee quite a bit uh, as he and I I can't remember if we discussed this on or off air but I like maltier beers i don't like so just over the top with the hops i like beers that are balanced and that's the kind of beers they're making so yeah let's listen to kraz and talk to him and uh enjoy it guys you're gonna learn a lot in this one Welcome back, Mark. Uh, one of my two-time podcasters. You were here. You were like number two or three on the list. And I'm back for a victory lap now. And I will say, uh, I've changed my format so because I distinctly remember reading like uh, an ad or something during your thing, and you were like, "I just feel gross, Dan." <laughs> so I now I do feel that. that way a lot of the time. Yeah, I Danny, do, In my own defense, I do that before and after now. So you know, my. Special guests don't have to be a part of my, uh, you know, reading about, you know, all my advertisers I have, Mark. You yes, know. that's right. Well, someone's got to pay the bills. You know, soap, you know, soap from the laundry mat and all this kind of, uh, you know, refrigeration cleaners, you know, all the stuff for the housewives that listen to the Vintage Stories podcast, well, you know. And you've got a voice as silky smooth as yours, Dan. <laughs> mm. So what's going on, man? You're you're back and forth. You're living. Where are you living now? Yeah, I live down in Marlboro now, um, but have lots of research activity and consulting activity up here in Hawkes Bay. So um, make reasonably frequent trips up here during the off season. Because now direct flights to Blenheim, or there are. I drove though. I needed my Ute this time. Uh -huh. so that's the thing. So I only have one vehicle, even though there's two regions. So. But during the summer. Uh, oh, that'd be a fly up. Yeah, because that that uh, ferry in the summer, the price just ticks, ticks, ticks up. You know. Yes. And availability, I'm sure, and all that. Yeah. 
And uh, anywhere, any other regions you go to, or just the two biggies? Uh, well, we've got a little bit of research activity in Central, so I'll go down there a couple times a year and maybe do some readings for some people down there. But um, it's not a place, you know, if it's our consulting sort of requires lots of regular visits because we're actually measuring vines, um, a bit different than a wine consultant. So we need to go frequently to those vineyards. So um, anything outside of where we're based uh, is difficult. And... You, I know you have somebody working for you up here, anywhere. Yeah, I got a couple people up here and a couple people down there. Cool. Yeah. So, well, then, uh, on a torrential downpour day in Hawks Bay, let's talk about water. Yeah, I was driving in thinking how ironic it was that we were going to talk about water and water scarcity when it's just pouring down. I don't exactly have an insulated office uh, studio here, so we're lucky it stopped for a little while. But I was thinking, oh man, they're going to get a nice hum in the back of the the podcast because it was just coming down for a while there this morning but anyway you are um yeah you're doing it man what's going on you're doing pressure bombs yes so uh you know we use a piece of scientific equipment to sort of measure how hard vines are having to work for water so getting an idea of sort of how stressed or not that they are um with the idea being that um it doesn't make a lot of sense to water a vine that doesn't need it you know, you just create excessive vigor and you reduce the quality of fruit and you maybe have to thin fruit off that you wouldn't have had to thin otherwise. So, um, you know, it's easy to do, uh, certainly to turn on the taps and just leave them going all season. Um, but what you don't see are the sort of hidden costs and the hidden loss in quality there. So we're trying to sort of help people read their vines so that they're being more efficient with their resources. So after the, because I was at the, what was that red symposium? Is that what it was called? The NZ SVO workshop. Yeah. So that was pretty eye opening, and I mean, I wasn't necessarily surprised by it, but I was certainly happy that you had some great results, uh, at least some data that was significant, mm -hmm. as we always talk about in statistics. Well, okay. So let me just throw the caveat. Let me put on my scientist hat and Good. put in That's the caveat here. Uh, those that we only ever made one wine from the dry side of that trial and one wine from the wet side. So uh, we can't do stats. So there's no degrees oh, of freedom there. That's true. Um, How many vintages? The, Five you'd have to do probably? Uh, of, of a single wine? I'm not, I think, yeah, you, you could do it if you did that. Um, and in fact, that project actually sort of has is now this season being rolled out uh, across the country. So we just got funding from the New Zealand wine growers to do an irrigation project. Um, half of it's in whites, where the idea is to get the same yield we're getting now, same quality we're getting now, but use less water. Um, the other half of the trial, which is more what, what we did uh, uh, and the wines that we showed at the NZSVO, is looking at uh, using water as a means to control the vines to control their yields uh, and to increase the quality by actually purposely stressing vines, you know, mild stress, not leaves falling off sort of stress. Yeah. Uh, for controlled amounts of time at controlled uh, stages in the berries development. And let's rewind a second because uh, let's talk about two things. One is historically what it's been like in New Zealand uh, as far as, and you know, with all, good fine reason i think one of the great things about new zealand wine is we've learning curve is really good and we might make mistakes but we're, we're quick to adjust uh because we probably don't have a lot of laws and culture to hold us up from doing so yeah. um and then the other thing i want to talk about is your uh history uh, or where you come from and maybe some of the california winemaking where you actually have to pay for water mm -hmm. and so it's not really a choice in the matter and then the other thing I'm going to do is stand up and shut our door so that the cat doesn't come in and start meowing in the middle. Okay, that's fair enough. 
Um, so as far as uh, sort of traditional um, irrigation in New Zealand, uh, yeah, I mean, we're sort of blessed here uh, in that we have a climate where rain comes uh, periodically during the summer. Um, where I studied in California, that's not the case. Uh, you can be pretty well guaranteed that throughout the summer, you'll maybe get one rainstorm, uh, maybe. Uh, this is nothing Na Napa, else. Sonoma. Napa, Sonoma, Northern California. I mean, I was in Davis, but uh, the weather patterns are, you know, pretty bloody uh, consistent. There's there. quite a bit of vineyards up near Sacramento and stuff as well. There are, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they don't get the sort of repute or the renown of, of Napa and Sonoma, and they don't uh, demand the same price. But there are some great wines being made there because it's proper varieties, you know, hot weather southern italian varieties yep. which do well in a hot dry climate mm. um, as opposed to trying to shoehorn in chardonnay yeah. into yeah. a really really warm climate where it's never evolved to deal with that and it's never going to fully express its potential in those sort of climates um, so you know new zealand does have this sort of uh, weather that would allow um, for a dry farms for for you know sort of uh, viticulture similar to what they do in the, in the high-end areas of France where, you know, no irrigation is allowed um, because we get those rains uh, and the vines are not sitting for months at a time with no water, um, which vines can cope with, but it requires some training of the vine and, and dramatic reductions in yield. So the... What about like, what you know, baby vines, you know, first three years, everybody always says, oh, you got to irrigate in those first three years. And, you know, and then other people say... Well, I'll get on to sort of yeah. organic and weed spraying and all yeah. that as another thing. But yeah. let's just start with water um, in those first three years. What is is what? What do you think about that? You know, let's just um, well, even in areas of France and areas of Europe that that dry farm, they do allow you to irrigate your vines uh, before they start yielding fruit, um, and it is something you need to do if you're going to get a very dry season. Um, be simply because these young vines have a tiny root system, and so they're exploring only a tiny little patch of soil, yeah. which they can suck dry pretty quickly. And um, if they can't, if they can't grow new roots into new soil uh, fast enough for the water that they use up, then you know those vines can go into stress and lose their leaves, and then they're still alive, but they're not doing anything that's going to serve them. They're not making any energy to grow new roots because they're basically just sort of holding their breath and, and trying to stay alive. Mm. Um, that said, uh, irrigating frequently and often when you're establishing young vines really stunts their root growth. Because um, they don't have a reason to grow. Why would they spend energy growing roots, which is the organ to get water and minerals, when they already have plenty of those things? Yep. So, you know, um, and that, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, has been the way that vines tend to be established in the New World, uh, New Zealand included. Um, and so what we have here are some mature vineyards, you know, maybe 15, 20 year old vineyards that have the root system that a three or four year old dry farm vineyard would have, yeah. um, that it's very shallow. Uh, they're not exploring the soil to, to any depth because they've never needed to. Um, um, and, have you had any experience in I don't know, recovery or I don't know if that's the right word, but basically, you know, a vineyard that has, you know, been traditionally or for new world traditionally and they are have you know their 15 year old vine that has three four year old root system and then you start stressing them and then how quickly can they recover well i mean that's really what we're doing with with our consulting clients is that we are measuring the vines and we're bringing them to regulated levels of stress levels of stress that basically send a signal to the vine geez i'm running out of water so i definitely need to stop growing new leaves 
and new shoots because those are the source of my uh, water loss. And I need to focus more of my energy on on growing roots. Yeah. So, you know, for this trial that we did uh, uh, with Villa Maria over here in the gravels, the berries ended up being 30% lighter than the berries on the well-watered side. Um, all of that energy that would have gone into cell division in those berries and cell expansion in those berries uh, went into root growth. And so over time, you know, anytime that you sort of limit the above ground growth that a vine's doing, you know, you, if you don't water a vine, you see the slow sluggish shoot growth and you think, oh, geez, that vine's not growing. Um, what you don't see is that the vine's totally growing. It's just growing underground, mm. that it's spending more of its energy on developing a root system rather than growing leaves and shoots and fruit. Um, and so really for all of our consulting clients, uh, especially those growing red uh, red grapes where we where we tend to stress them a little bit more, uh, those vines are every year becoming a little bit more resilient and every year their root systems are growing and exploring new soil and it actually makes it easier then to sort of deficit irrigate those grapes in the future. And the idea for most of our, our, our clients is that uh, ideally they'd like to dry farm their vines at some point sure. and never have to worry about irrigation. Hey, that'd be great. I think you could do it here. You know, we should... I don't know, maybe Otago is about the driest, would you say? Or? Otago is definitely the driest, but they have the benefit of growing Pinot Noir where you're not looking to get a ton of yield. You yeah. know, Marlboro has some really dry, gravelly soils. And at the same time, they're growing Sauvignon Blanc and, and wanting 16 tons a hectare. And so that really requires, uh, I mean, I, I hate the term hydroponic viticulture, but you really do need to irrigate a hell of a lot of water onto those vines and often a lot of minerals too because those soils that they don't have a lot of clay and don't have a lot of silt they don't have uh, the ability to hold on to minerals and so those vines can easily scavenge all the minerals in the soil that there's uh, exploring and end up deficient uh, as they continue to grow. And so you need to then fertigate those vines or put on solid fertilizer. Uh, Sounds like uh, some Gimlet Gravels vineyards I've worked on. <laughs> well, Gimlet Gravels is, is definitely another extreme. But again, on the gravels, it's mostly reds. Yeah. So you don't need this the wall of, of, of leaves as your canopy, and you're not trying to get a huge amount sure. of fruit. So then Villa, you know, from what I could tell, was pretty pleased with the results of, you know, more open bunches, smaller berries, more intense fruit yep. for their premium wine. Lines, their premium reds coming off yep. of the gravels. So within, yep. well, I guess within reason, I don't know. Within I mean, re Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously they don't want to drop their yield to the point where it's not economically sustainable. Sure. Um, but what we got off that vineyard was 10 ton naturally, you know, just through smaller berries. And that is exactly the yield they would normally have hand thinned. To 10 get. ton a hectare. 10 ton per hectare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so it ended up coming bang on yield, but they didn't have to spend the single most expensive pass through the vineyard, which is sending... Uh, people through to drop fruit because that's not something that's easily mechanizable. No. Um, and so they were really pleased. And when we tasted these wines at this workshop, you know, it was a room full of 60 winemakers. And I think 58 of them preferred the dry wine to the uh, the wine that was traditionally irrigated. So, um, you know, while there wasn't stats on the wines themselves, I would say that finding and the fact that pretty uh, much I everyone mean, in the room preferred them is a statistically valid result. Uh, I think, result. you know, just... Put it this way, they were close enough, and even, you know, obviously there was a sway for the more intense fruit, but the money and the stats alone are, you know, and I'm not just talking like PHTA and all that, which seemed to be more favorable to the dry farm stuff uh, or the, the stressed block, uh, but just the idea that, like, it was a better result, but pretty much it could be pretty similar without all that stupid effort into, mm -hmm. you know, which is pretty... Um, pretty typical of a, of a Kiwi vineyard and probably other new world, you know, to 
you know, mow, trimming, uh, weed eat, weed eaters or weed sprays, like, you know, all this extra passing and working of tractor time and people time and, yep. you know, all this extra stuff when, and sprays because, you know, you have these bunches that are, you know, these berries that are so big and fat and, and squashing each other that, you know, mm-hmm. there's so all that, you know, aside, aside from the fact that actually we preferred the wine, which was like a bonus, yep. you know, it's like. I think we're good enough winemakers to, you know, if the fruit's pretty similar and clean, like you're going to make a good wine out of it, you know? Yeah. So. Um, yeah. And these are sort of the hidden costs that I say are associated with maybe giving the vines more water than they need, um, which which haven't really been considered. And so as, as part of this trial, um, what we're doing is splitting vineyards in half and irrigating half traditionally and irrigating the other half uh, based on the pressure chamber readings. Um, but another part of the trial is we're going to keep track of the economics of all of this. We're going to yeah. keep track of both halves of the vineyards will be managed separately. So we'll keep track of the number of passes for weed spraying, for trimming, for leaf plucking, um, for things like that, uh, and for, for crop thinning so that we can, and then look at yield at the end and, you know, look and go with, uh, how much they're getting per ton. So we can actually look at the economics of growing grapes. Um, yep. And I think, you know, obviously I have no data because we haven't done uh, any experiments yet, but based on our little uh, trial that we did with Villa, uh, that it will not only be better quality fruit and better wines from the uh, stress side, but it'll also be significantly less to farm those grapes. Yep. So a win on sort of the quality uh, point of view, but also a win on the economic point of view. And have you seen, for example, you know, we're in the Bridge Paw district now i know you've worked on some bridge pav vineyards mm-hmm. um last year being a bit of a strange year because we had this mm-hmm. such a drought all summer and then we had two cyclones come through and another 100 mil rain incident in what february i think it was yeah it was a bit of a strange year but just from what you saw because uh, i know you kind of expanded into some other regions uh what did you see between the, the t- or have you seen anything significant during the year between the t- those, those two regions, for example? or Yeah, well, I mean, in Marlborough, we didn't get the same season at all. So we got the same uh, tons of rain around harvest, which was less than ideal. Um, but what we didn't have, which Hawks Bay did, which I think is really the savior uh, for the Hawks Bay wines in 2017, was that they had an outrageously hot and dry early summer up till mid-February. I think February 15th was the first of the big rains, and they didn't really let up till after that. Um, and so, you know, the thing that, that opened my eyes really was, you know, we had sort of had uh, in mind uh, a level of stress, you know, about 12 bars, which, you know, doesn't mean anything to who's, ne- who's never used a pressure bomb. But let's just say it's sort of mild uh, to moderate stress. Um, what well, we saw... We could explain. We right? could explain. And I will explain okay, the pressure cool, bomb cool. in a sec. Okay. But what we saw last season was vines getting to 16 bars, 17 bars, like much drier. Um, than we had, you know, targeted uh, simply because it was not only hot, it was really windy. Um, but the amazing thing was that those vines had no outward signs of any sort of stress. No, from what I saw in the vineyard that, uh, you know, you couldn't tell one from the other except for maybe they trimmed it less, but they probably just trimmed the other one. So it's tough to tell, Yeah, you know, but yeah. uh, it was, uh, yeah, there wasn't anything stressful going on and such a drought year too, you know. It was pretty eye-opening. Yeah, so it was sort of a worst-case scenario from a trying to keep up with the irrigation point of view. Um, but the fact that the vines came through it looking fine. Um, you know, the fruit was a bit of a different story because, you know, w- wet bunches that stay wet for months at a time are, are always going to rot uh, and split. 
Um, but the fact that those vines could get that stressed and, and sit in stress for you know a couple of days at a time with no leaf loss, no ill effects was was really heartening. You know, showing that these vines are a lot tougher. You know, I had worried that these sort of hydroponically grown vines were going to have such a small root system that a couple of days of you know, 35 degree weather plus wind was going to bring them to the point that they wouldn't be able to recover. And, and that was definitely not the case. So sure. it gives me a little bit more um, uh, faith that we can we can really push these vines and we can really bring them into uh, bordering on severe stress without losing leaves, but which definitely sends a signal internally to the fruit and internally to the vine to put the kibosh on shoot growth and to really focus on making that fruit as flavorful and palatable as possible. Yeah, well, it seems like, I don't know, everything that I've seen to an extent with a vine, there's always a stress reaction to what you do. And I don't have a, I'm not a doctor of viticulture. And I don't even have a degree in viticulture, though I did start as a vit guy before you got I there. I won't judge them. <laughs> but the department was in shambles until you showed oh, up, Mark. Yeah, and I had, I had already made my decision to switch to winemaking. Mm. Had nothing to do with the fact that I love being in a cellar. but uh, And I got tired of leaf plucking really quick. <laughs> yeah. It turns out machines can do a pretty good job of that. They don't complain as much. Uh, but anyway, you know, you do something within reason to a vine, it, it reacts to that stress usually in a pretty positive way. Hmm. You know, I mean, again, within reason. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of interesting to see it's a weed. It is. It, it wants to survive, you know. It definitely does. And, you know, and it wants to spread its seed. And, you know, I mean, the the, the, the way to grow any crop, you know, if you're trying to focus on the fruit, is uh, that you need to convince that plant to focus on the next generation and not on itself. Um, and when you give a vine plenty of water, the signal that that vine gets is, geez, I'm in a great place. So, yeah, I'll grow some fruit and I'll make some babies. But what I'm really going to do is make myself as big as possible and grow more shoots so that in the future I'll be able to make even more babies. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of how we've grown the grapes and ended up having too much yield and too much leaf and having to pluck leaves and, and drop crop. Um, whereas if you convince the vine that, Jesus maybe not the best place to live, you know, maybe it's drying out frequently and the vine's thinking, all right, I want to have babies, but I want them to go someplace better than where I am. Well, then they need to make those grapes as flavorful and beautiful as possible for something like a bird to come by and take the fruit and drop it somewhere else. Yeah, they haven't stressed themselves out enough to swat birds away themselves, though. No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. It would save everybody a lot of money if we could evolve that. Problem is, what would they do to viticulturists in the vineyard? Yeah, too? yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, let's go back to the pressure bomb yeah. uh, and how that all works and what you do when you're, you know, when do you start, first of all, doing, doing it in, the, in a given season? Well, I mean, uh, the way we're going to do it is we're going to start for all of our clients and for the research project weeks before any water would actually be needed, you know, because most people around here, depending on the soils you're in and the gravels, people might start well, in a typical season where it hasn't been raining all the time, uh, might start thinking about watering in a couple of weeks, you know, once there's sort of, you know, you know, 30 centimeters of growth. So end of October, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the people who I have worked with, and, and, and you know, truth be told, most of the uh, clients that we have are in the triangle, yeah. which does hold a hell of a lot more water than the gravels. Uh, most of them don't really start thinking about irrigation till till around Christmas time. Do you think that... It's just a matter of the fact of the wineries that you're working at with or that people in the gravels are a little scared of what you're doing or something or that they, they're just not quite ready yet. You know? Well, I mean, the gravels, because you've got a couple of things working against you in the gravels. You've got uh, this severe 
variations in the vineyards. So just as you go down a row, you can have vines that were planted on the exact same day, and some of them have, you know, tree trunks. Yeah. And others have like a pencil as, mm. as their trunk, simply because the soil that that pencil vine is on is mostly stones with very little dirt and very little mineral and very little ability to hold water. And then in these hollows uh, where you have your trees, you've got a huge amount of silt. So those vines, even though they're in the same vineyard, even though they might be, you know, three meters from each other, are going to produce dramatically different amounts and qualities of fruit. So it, it's a difficult place to farm for that. Um, and secondly, you see those little vines and you see them suffer. And if, let's say, you, you blow a, a main or a riser blows off of your um, irrigation, so let's say a, a, a half a row or a row goes without water for, well, you don't know how long. Um, and all of a sudden you go out there and you see that all of your sad little vines have lost all their leaves or they've turned yellow. Um, and you have no idea how long those vines have been without water. But the signal it sends to you as a grower is, geez, I need to keep these vines watered or they're all just going to kick their heels up. Yeah. Um, and it is true, vines will do that, uh, but only after they've been in stress for a really long period of time. And so what I think people haven't realized is how long those vines have been without water before they start to look real sick. Um, and so people in the gravels, because they have these, these very variable vineyards and because they kind of have to irrigate to their driest part of their vineyard yeah. so that those vines yeah. survive, yeah. Um, you end up irrigating every couple of days. Yeah. And generally, because the idea is these soils don't hold any water, you don't want to put on 12 hours of water because most of that, presumably, is just running right through the soil back down into the aquifer. Uh, and so you'd be wasting your energy. We'll get back to yeah, that. Yeah, I agree. I don't think anyone knows how much water these soils hold. And I personally think they hold much more than the average grower does. Um, but the perception is that the soils don't hold water. So I can't irrigate longer than an hour or two. But my vines can't go more than two days without water. So you get into the cycle of irrigating vines every other day or even every day for short periods. Um, and th that's the perfect recipe to grow weeds. I'm not so sure it's the perfect way to grow grapes. Yeah. Man, we'll get back to the aquifer thing as well. But anyway, getting back to your pressure pump. So you go in and you, what do you do? Yep. So a uh, very simple piece of equipment has been around in scientific circles for uh, over 60 years. Okay, so it's nothing new. It's nothing high tech. It's basically a sealable chamber that you can put a leaf into, uh, which you can pressurize with a compressed gas uh, cylinder. And we use nitrogen uh, and a pressure gauge. So the way I like to explain it is um, leaves are sucking on water. They're pulling on water. Okay, and they're pulling a little bit harder than the trunk, and the trunk's pulling a little bit harder than the roots, and the roots are pulling a little bit harder from the soil. Right? And that's what keeps water flowing from the soil through the roots, through the trunk, out the leaves to keep the vine doing what it's doing. Um, so what you can do is if you pull one of those leaves off, you cover it so that it doesn't lose any water um, uh, once you pluck it from the vine, you put a little bag over the, the leaf and you put it into the chamber and you pressurize that chamber. You seal the leaf in and you pressurize that chamber with its uh, stem sticking out of the chamber. And when the pressure that you've applied is equal to the suction that that leaf was pulling uh, with, what you see is that water just rises to the surface of the, of this, of the leaf stem or the petiole. Um, and so you know instantaneously at that point when you pluck that leaf off the vine, that was how hard the leaf was working. Yeah. And certain processes uh, happen at certain water potentials. And so that number is called water potential. And you can measure it in bars, which is the sort of imperial measure, or you can measure it in megapascals, which is the 
which is the metric measure. Um, but in either case, certain physiological processes happen at certain water potentials, like shoot elongation is one of the first things to slow down as a vine dries down. So that starts to happen around um, seven or eight, nine bars, something like that. Uh, as the vine gets drier and drier, uh, the stomata on the leaves will actually close. So the vine will, um, so I guess I should take a step back. So stomata are these pores on the leaves. So vines basically from the air drink in CO2 and they absorb light in the leaves. Okay, and, and that light and the CO2 are used in the process of photosynthesis to make sugars, which is the currency of, of all plants. Um, the problem, the inevitable consequence of having these pores open to bring in CO2 is that the vine will always lose water. Okay, and so at a certain point when a vine gets dry, uh, it's better to stop making sugar, but conserve your water and stay alive, uh, than to continue to do photosynthesis. And so um, when I say we're targeting these vines, especially red wine, uh, we're targeting stress, we're purposely putting the vines into stress, um, I'm talking about a level where they start to clothe these stomata. So they're actually being less efficient than they could be, but that's exactly what we want as growers. We don't want them to be going full bore all the time because that means huge berries. It means lots of shoot growth. And as a red wine grower, you want as small a berries as you can get, you know, obviously as long as you get your yield, and you want an open canopy that allows a light exposure on the fruit. Um, and so we use the numbers generated by the pressure chamber to basically make the decision whether those vines need water or not. Cool. Yeah, and it's very re replicatable, and it's the tool to sort of measure uh, any plant, not just grapevines, in a research setting. Yeah. So, pretty, I mean, like you said, not exactly revolutionized technology, but just something that nobody else has been doing? For in New Zealand. In New Zealand, um, that's yeah, what I mean. In yeah. California, in Australia, in Europe, where, well, either you're not allowed to, well, in Europe, it's more of a research tool. But in California, where you pay for every gallon of water that you use, you sure as hell don't want to waste any. And so a pressure, a pressure chamber is a pretty standard tool for a viticulturist there to assess whether that precious water needs to be put on the grapes or not. Which brings me to... A very hot topic. Yeah, in it Hawks is Bay a very right hot now. topic. Yeah. So, uh, without getting politicizing ourselves or aligning ourselves with who or what or whatever, uh, I've actually reached out to some of the people involved uh, with <clears throat> at least Hawks Bay wine growers and the ongoing conversation about the water conservation order and tank mm -hmm. and all this. I would love for one of them to, to come and sit down in a long format and just discuss uh, what's going on. Uh, but I do think from the meetings that I've been to that it's it's a little bit of a sensitive issue for the wine growers because on the one hand, we do want to preserve the river and we do want to preserve. Uh, so we've kind of taken this compromise. And we, we also don't want to be seen to the buying public that we're not for uh, the environment, which I'm pretty sure everybody is. But uh, so we've kind of gone with this compromise where we say, you know, the upper Nararoa River, we are very happy to conserve all that. It's a very special, pristine native bush. And uh, that's great. Whereas the lower, which is uh, all these braided uh, parts of the river that are, you know, I, I guess the trout fishermen <laughs> and fishing game are... Uh, are they've kind of gone the legal route to uh, which has been very successful for them throughout the, they have no community dialogue nothing like that they've gone strictly to the courts uh, and it's been 
I'm going to just say from what I've read and what I've heard that it, I think it's pretty unfair that, you know, it just goes across the board. To, they don't want a real dialogue. They just want to shut it down. Yeah. Um, now, they could be 100% right. I have no idea. Um, and we don't know really what's going on underground with the aquifers and everything exactly. We don't know what's being drawn off of there. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, all whether, very true. There's 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 a there's there's a bit of guesswork involved in all of these, and, and I'm not really familiar with sort of um, how uh, fishing game has gotten the numbers uh, that that they have. It just seems strange to me. Again, I'm I'm like a kind of a, oh, as always in Hawks Bay uh, in an interesting position because I can be like an outsider, but even on this one, I'm not a grower, so I don't mm-hmm. have like. You know, I just want good fruit, and I want everybody. I want the industry to thrive and everything. But I, I can also see the point of like, you know, exactly what we're talking about. It's like, well, everybody's over irrigating. First of all, I think the wine industry, you know, even though we irrigate too much, we're pennies on the dollar to what some of these farms are doing around here. Where I get so pissed off, I'm driving down the road and there's sprinklers literally. Yeah, while spraying, it's raining. While it's raining, they're on and they're spraying onto the road, and I'm like, who has these people in check? Like, come on, they have a little bit of a and and it's like there's no you know while we're doing like drip irrigation across a vineyard and it's uh, you know again pennies on the dollar uh, for lack of a better analogy so it's a complex issue and uh, we'll see how it all shakes out uh, I don't you know I'm not going to put you on the spot because I don't know how much you know about it but I would say. You could be a man in demand <laughs> yes. very quickly well, in the coming yeah, uh, years. Certainly, you know? if uh, well, I mean, to be honest, uh, in this election, uh, and I'm, I'm not talking about the water conservation order. I'm talking about the nationwide election, which just took place uh, in September. Here, um, the Labor Party brought up the idea of a water tax. Um, now, Labor didn't win a majority of the of the votes, and it still remains to be seen whether whether they'll form a coalition that, that will rule. But I think. The fact that people are thinking about water, that it's something that's on people's minds, uh, is a good thing. It's a good thing for the quality. I mean, at least on the viticulture side, it's a good uh, thing for the quality of the grapes. Um, you know, for something like apples, it, uh, tonnage is, is what determines your your margin. Um, yeah. And tonnage comes from water. There's, It's only in grapes that this idea of purposely reducing yield to increase the quality of the remaining fruit um, is really a thing in agriculture. There's no other agricultural crop where that is true. Um, it has been proven again and again in grapes that it is the case. Yeah. An overcrop vine doesn't make as good a quality of wine for most styles and definitely for all red wines uh, than a vine that's producing fewer grapes. Yeah. Um, so we're in a good position. In we this, are. In that sense. And that we, if forced to, we can pivot and and correct ourselves from from the sins of the past. Yeah, well, I see what you did there with yeah. pivot. That's yeah. clever. So, yeah. uh, and, and, and as you said, viticulture is a really minor offender when it comes to the amount of water put on. Um, and, you know, when studies have been done, uh, sort of whether viticulture is a net uh, a user of water or provider of water, um, again and again, every time they crunch the numbers, viticulture is a net provider of water. Because vines are dormant during the winter, all of the water that falls on a vineyard in the winter goes right back to the aquifer. Yeah. So yes, we do irrigate in the summer, and yes, our vines do use water to transpire and 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 uh, ripen their fruit. Um, but overall, vineyards give back more water than they take, and not all farming in New Zealand does that. Certainly not. Certainly not when they're sprinkling the highway as you're driving yes. through your car and you get watered. <laughs> yep. Um, no, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting, and and I wish. Or I hope, I don't know, you know, I think I always say this about New Zealand is we have a chance to do things right here and um, 
yeah, you know, I see the sort of a capitalist attitude of, you know, hey, we won't try to make some money out of this too. But it seems like if the dialogue is correct, that uh, we can get that point across mm-hmm. and we can, you know, use someone like yourself to, uh, to achieve what we need to achieve. And then as an industry as a whole, like we could, you know, support somebody like the Giblet Gravels, who's probably going to need a little more water than your typical vineyard. Yeah. And, uh, and say, you know, even with what they do, here's the research and hopefully New Zealand wine growers and Hawks Bay wine growers and the Bridge Pa and everybody, you know, we all kind of all get on the same team, but from what I've seen so far, it's been a little bit of a dance to like, well, we kind of want to say this, but I, I, I'm telling you, I came out of the first meeting and I was like, I wanted to raise my hand and be like, well, what is our position? like? But I'm not a grower, so I don't mm-hmm. want to be that guy. And uh, But I kind of wanted to say like, and I don't think anybody really knew, you know, I think they knew that this was being forced on them really quick yeah. without a real dialogue yeah. and uh, and that they... Uh, they didn't want to piss off their markets, you know, that they wanted that sustainability card mm-hmm. and they want uh, to be friendly to the river and everything. But mm-hmm. um, but then, you know, you you kind of see, what is it, No Way V, or what is the signs you see? Now, I don't know if you've seen around Hawks Bay, but there's one just up the road now here and it's like, uh, say no to W WCO. Yeah, and, I, and, I drove know, by one on the way here as well. Yeah. Um, which uh, we haven't aligned. A New Zealand wine growers has, or Hawks Bay wine growers hasn't aligned themselves with that, uh, you know, black and white message. Which they are black and white signs. But they are literally <laughs> yes, and they do have pictures of cows on them. At least the one I saw, and I think it's probably that industry that's a little bit more anti uh, uh, any thought of. Oh, reducing yeah, and water. I could go on and on about. Um, yeah, about we that. don't we don't need to slag off other primary industries. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not really sure. I'm going to a meeting this evening uh, with some people involved in in this in this argument and some of the lawyers and, and things like that. Um, I know that uh, a worst case scenario sort of uh, was was laid out to me where if um, the low flow in the river is redefined to what the uh, the fishing game people want it to be, um, it could mean that there could be a period as long as I want to say it was 85 or 89 days. Yeah of no irrigation in the midst of the summer, which, to be honest, is about the length of time that you would be irrigating vines. Uh, it's the exact time. You it is exactly. And, and, and it is in the months where you need the irrigation. It's in the driest months. Um, and that would be a heavy blow to the wine industry in general, particularly to the gravels, um, because you, you certainly could train those vines and the gravels to grow without water. Um, but it is not a process that happens immediately. Well, that's w- what I was, ho- again, hoping for is that there's a nice dialogue. And so just give us some time to adjust to this. This, you know, let's get our research right and let's, mm-hmm. you know, make sure we're not going to starve the river and everything. But we're going to have a 10-year plan or whatever. And yep. and uh, and maybe everybody's in check. Yep. Uh, and we're all watching each other and making sure there's not irrigators left on it through the night and blah, blah, blah. And, well, everybody's uh, got flow meters. So, you know, the regional council will definitely pick up um, users. But I, I like your idea of sort of everybody tapering back slowly over time. Um, and, and this research project we're doing, we're, we're actually measuring the amount of water put onto both halves of the vineyard. Uh, and one of the vineyards is in very gravelly soil in the Gimlet Gravel. So we will have an idea of how much water, at a minimum, you can get by with. Yeah. Uh, to, to, to get our current, uh, our, our current yield that we're, yeah, that, that we're aiming And for. that's what I mean. I, I don't even just mean on a commercial level, you'd be a man in need. I think your research and what you, the, your findings are going to be immediately like 
this could be a little guideline for for us to 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 keep an eye on and just and to play ball with you know and and uh hopefully you don't get sucked into a political tornado or anything you know but i'm hoping not as well yeah um you know because i'm a scientist so i can state the facts i can state my opinions based on those facts and you know i mean if i'm an expert witness or something that's that's all i can do for for the record i could totally see you being like the scientist on uh, in a movie of a disaster or something like that oh, yeah you, you've okay. kind of got that look and feel mark oh, yeah. well, just uh, played by that. jeff goldblum in the movie yeah. I assume. <laughs> I'm telling you, the water is coming. <laughs> Why won't they listen to you? You know. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, we'll see. This is going to be a really exciting season. Um, just, just to get an idea of you know uh, how little we can get by with, and does that make the wine better, and what does that do to the economics of the vineyard? Because I really do think that, especially in Hawks Bay, especially with red wine, you know, I mean, it, you can cream it, you can make a lot of money if you're selling Marbrasev because mm. you can crop it at twice the tonnage that you can crop red wines at. And you get right around $2,000 a ton for it. So an immensely profitable uh, uh, crop. But here in Hawks Bay, you get much less for Sav and you can't crop it the same. Um, but we've hung our reputation on things like Chardonnay and things like red wines where you can't get that same yield. So really, your margins are much slimmer. Yeah. So anything you can do to reduce the costs of farming. Let's just leave quality aside. Let's just say all quality being equal, anything that you can do to save a bit of cash, you know. Oh, I don't have to do that one weed spray, you know, because I didn't grow weeds because I irrigated uh, differently. Or, you know, at the very least, I didn't have to pump as much water from my bore to irrigate my vineyard because the vines didn't need it. I See, mean, this, all of that's a direct This is what I'm really uh, hoping for is like, I ha I just know the way a lot of growers think. And, you know, I, I get it. They got families and they're just not used. They can't just change overnight. But, you know, I, I think the weed spraying is just completely out of control, and I wish it would stop. But I think if a good compromise could be, you know, aligned with your research to be like, well, maybe you only have to do one mm. for this year, and then maybe over the next year you realize I don't have to do any, and I could figure out another way to maybe I only have to undermine mow like once or twice for the whole year, and everybody's better off and yeah. uh, because I'm not – over irrigating and growing weeds like you were just saying so i tend to be not somebody who you know i'm not going to be a organic nazi or a biodynamic nazi even mm -hmm. though i really believe in that yeah uh, but i get it from the other standpoint and people are scared and you kind of have to pull them along into that way but i i see something like the project you're working on as a really good way to pull people back into a an area that is makes a lot more sense for a lot more reasons, and then they can all, all of a sudden say, "Oh yeah, well, there's this and that as well." Yeah, um, yeah. and Unless we don't have to do all these other things that are, you know, wasting. I mean, the weed spray thing, and and um, you know what that what we're finding out that does to the environment and stuff. You know, I got my kid; we're living on a vineyard here. I don't yeah. really want her around it. Um, yeah. But on top of that, diesel, everything else you're wasting when you're you're riding through the vineyard millions of times um you know what would what's a vineyard manager going to do mark what are they going to do with all their free time with if you come along with all this you're going to what are they going to they're going to be leaf plucking themselves i guess or well whatever? hopefully they'll be going out with a pressure chamber and measuring their vines nice. so they determine when the water actually needs to be put on um uh, the herbicide thing is 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 an interesting point and you know uh, the the judicious use of herbicides in vineyards is definitely something that will not be allowed um, forever, um, you know, whether it be market pressure, which is 
the most likely uh, thing that will drive us away from it. Um, there's certainly herbicide-resistant weeds that are developing, um, things like ryegrass down in Marlboro, and there's actually some up in here, up here in Hawks Bay and some up in Gizzy as well. Um, that's a problem. Um, and there's some ryegrass that's doubly resistant to both uh, uh, Roundup glyphosate as well as Buster glufosinate, and those are the two most common, well, the reason it's resistant is those are the two most commonly used herbicides. Um, and our reliance on chemistry is really tenuous because there's no new chemistry. Like, there's no new herbicide chemistry. There hasn't been for about 40 years, and there's no new uh, ones in the pipeline. So yeah. our existing uh, herbicides that we have is what we have to deal with. Um, and so anything, you know, I mean, the whole another research project that has nothing to do with water that we're doing is, is looking to get away from herbicides, to reduce their use, uh, or look at how do we keep um, non-chemically weeded vineyards uh, profitable, you know, try to keep yield up when you undervine cultivate or undervine mow. Um, and that's another uh, research project we have on the go, started last year, and we've gotten some real positive results there. Um, well, you got any good customers up here in Hawks Bay? Because I'm always looking for good growers who aren't weed spraying and uh, and they are doing well, some I cultivation. You, you work for one of them. I work for yeah, one of them. Yeah. I know that. And I'm actually uh, across the street. I'm very happy to say uh, Zan's Viognier, uh, as far as we last discussed, he wasn't going to weed spray this year. So oh, I think that's, that's a great, uh, at least that block. I don't know about the rest of the block. Uh, so. Viognier is a good variety to avoid weed spraying because uh, it will tend to grow a huge, uh, dense canopy and it does rot pretty quickly. Mm. So a nice open canopy, lots of sun exposure. So on if you fruit. do, if you do speak to Zan, um, put a little reminder in there for me, okay, gotcha. uh, but I, I see him fairly regularly, but to say, Hey, I heard you're. You know, not weed spraying and, yeah. uh, you know, in that block and, uh, you know, because I think that's great and people should be encouraged. But um, yeah, well, I mean, I, so I can just if you don't mind me just sort of checking something out there. So part of our part of our research trial and, and we did it up in Hawks Bay and Merlot and, and down in um, Marlboro on Sev was to go with a single um, early season spray and then follow it up with either mowing or cultivation or scare, something non-chemical, something that a plant will never develop resistance to. Um, and we didn't see a single negative effect of that. The yields were all exactly the same. The grape chemistry was all exactly the same. Um, the fruit health was all exactly the same. If, if anything, the moving away from herbicides actually pushed the ripeness of the fruit a little bit oh, okay. in Marlboro, um, in, in one of our sav vineyards. Uh, so it does look like this idea that I need to keep the undervine perfectly clean and spray herbicides three times a year uh, is completely unnecessary. The, the competition, uh, when, when the weeds compete with the vines at critical times, is early in the season. So yes, do an early season spray uh, to, to get rid of that competition. But then once the fruit's there, once you've hit set and, 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 uh, and flowering, um, a little bit of stuff under the vines isn't, isn't a problem. Yeah, because also, I mean, there's, uh, I'm, I'm going to state this as a question or question it as a statement, I should say. Uh, when you do have a bit more under the vine and stuff going on in the soil, mealybug will stay down in the soil theoretically. There are definitely uh, species of ground cover plants that mealybug prefers to grapevines. And uh, could help with that overwatering irrigation as well or suck up some, you know, having a little bit of grass under the vine isn't the worst thing in the world for... Um, other reasons? I mean, yeah. What are the other reasons? Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of undervine mowing, especially mm. for red grapes. Because firstly, you're not striving for uh, extreme tonnage. Because undervine mm. mowing really does um, decrease your potential tonnage. 
Okay, but so in salve, maybe that's a bad thing. For for many salve growers, it's just not a goer because I can't get less than sixteen tons, so I can't undervine mill. Uh, for people up in Hawks Bay, um, for people growing Pinot down in Marlboro that are striving for you know a fraction of that tonnage, I think undervine mowing is a great tool. Um, it pulls. It naturally competes with the vine. Um, again, it can compete with the vine too strongly, but that's where having something like a pressure chamber or having someone come in and measure the vines, uh, you can determine when they need water. Yeah. And you can give them a good long drink. Um, the problem with undervine mowing, and lots of people have tried it and lots of people have gone away from it, is that people have gone to undervine mowing, but they haven't changed their irrigation practice. So they're still going with this irrigation for a short time every other day. And the, the way I like to think of undervine uh, uh, grass in particular, because grass pretty much completely colonizes the top 10 centimeters of soil, is that basically if you put on water, unless you get it down to 11 centimeters, the grass is going to take it all. Yeah. And your vines won't have access to any of it. Um, and if you irrigate for an hour every other day, maybe that water goes down 15 centimeters. So, you know, the grass is taking two-thirds of the water that you're putting on. Whereas if you wait and put on, you know, eight hours of irrigation every two weeks, which is the same amount of water, mm. uh, that water will go much deeper into the profile. And assuming you have a soil that will hold on to that, and again, the gravels may not, but no one really knows, uh, then the vine gets a vast majority of the water that you've put on rather than the grass. Um, and so I think a lot of the people that have gone away from undervine mowing um, simply tried to change one thing in their vineyard, and, and, and it didn't work the way that they had hoped it would. Yeah. But if they had maybe thought things through a little bit better or been able to measure the vines, um, they would have been able to make that undervine mowing work. And when you do get a season like last year where you get a huge downpour kind of near harvest, um, undervine grass is a great way to sort of suck some of that water out of the soil so the vine doesn't have this huge amount of water available to it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's a great tool. I think it's underutilized. Um, but you need to be careful. You can't just change your sure, sprayer I mean, to a mower and assume it, and keep everything else the same and assume you're going to get a good result. You, I would imagine with anything uh, in the vineyard, you'd have to look at it as a whole and what, what are the other things we're doing that are going to affect, affect yeah. that, you know? So, yeah. um, well, man, we covered a lot, but I don't want to let you go before we talk about beer. Okay. Well, I don't mind talking about beer at all. <laughs> I mean, it takes a lot of beer to talk about wine. Yeah. I mean, that's why I had six before we did this. <laughs> so, uh, you got a little beer project going and, yeah. uh, I've tasted the beers are good beers. Thank you. Um, uh, what's going on with your beers? So, um, well, the beer project is really, um, uh, collaboration between myself and uh, and my friend Damian Birchman. It's basically our um, money losing business that we yeah, have. Sure. So you know the research pays the bills, and then the the beer company sort of sucks the the bank account dry. But um, now, really, we love making beer. We love the idea of craft beer. Uh, for me personally. I dislike most craft beers because I find them far too bitter. Mm. Um, it seems to be, and I know this is a bit of a, uh, it was the same in the States, and I don't know if it just jumped the pond uh, to here, that the way that microbrewers go about their day is, how can I make the most bitter beer out there? How can I add more hops? More hops, beer? yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, 
that's a very easy way to make beer. Hops are reasonably cheap, especially in New Zealand. Um, making bitter beer just means add them at the beginning of the boil and boil for a long time. So it doesn't require any art uh, at all. Um, but I don't like drinking those beers, and I particularly don't like drinking those beers with food. Yeah. And coming from the wine background, I want my alcoholic beverages to play well with food. Yeah, well, it's over extraction, over oak, that yep. same kind of young wine, young wine region type of thing has gone on in the in the microbrew world. And sure, yeah, the same thing happened in Philadelphia twenty years ago when the boom really mm. started there, 20, maybe twenty five years ago. And it's mellowed. It's funny how many more mellow stouts are out there now and uh, malty beers. And as you know, uh, you remembered so kindly of you to remember that I like malty beers and balanced beers a lot more than uh, these double hopped, you know, giant beers that are out there and dry hop, blah, 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 you know. Mm -hmm. And for the record, I hate a pumpkin beer. I'm just not a fan. (laughs) I don't like pumpkins. Pumpkin spice. I don't like pumpkins full stop. So that's not a beer we're probably going to end up making. Though there are great pumpkins in Hawks Bay, and I eat pumpkin a lot, and I actually enjoy saying the word pumpkin. Okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) See, I like a butternut pumpkin, which we call a squash Squash. in America. Um, But yeah, pumpkins, it's not, let's say, not my favorite vegetable. So we shan't be making any beers from that anytime soon. Maybe come harvest time, it is an appropriate thing to do. What beers are you guys making? What are the so uh, we've got our three uh, that we started with to start the company. Uh, Miss Tiffany is a blonde ale. Um, all of them pretty heavy on the malt. Um, Miss Tiffany doesn't have a lot of roasted malt, so it's sort of a light golden in color. Um, but lots of aroma hops, so real pretty, real citrusy, real floral. Um, good summertime beer, easy drinking. Um, we've got the uh, Cherokee Indian Pale Ale which is a quite a malty little number. Uh, stylistically, it's probably closer to an English pale ale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that one's going quite well uh, in pubs around town. Uh, and then we have our Boobalicious Red Ale, which is our hoppy beer. I mean, 120 IBUs, twice what the human perception of bitterness threshold is. Um, so bloody bitter, um, but a good malt hit as well. Yep. Um, and then that one's been pretty popular uh, in the in the microbrew scene. We've got a couple of prototypes that we're quite happy with and about ready to get labels for and release. One is called uh, the Atramentus Black IPA. So a dark beer, but dry hop like an IPA. Okay. So it got so the maltiness of a dark beer, but that sort of real fresh, grassy, floral uh, uh, hop character. Uh, and then finally, the uh, Umami Brown Ale which is a brown ale, um, and at the very end of the boil, a bit of miso is added. Just and that's add your favorite? Tiny, uh, it's, it's my baby. It's the one that I've, I've been developing and uh, is particularly aimed at the, at the high-end dining market. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's not so much miso that you taste miso, but it does have an ever-so-slight saltiness, and it does have an ever-so-slight savoriness at the end. Um, and it's a real big multi-number. Again, not outrageously bitter so that it plays well with food. Mm. Cool, man. Yeah. So, and the beauty of the brewing is you can always sort of do one-off brews and play with things. And we got a new grain. We got a new hop. Let's make a little bit of beer. That is the one thing that I am uh, envious. I wouldn't say jealous because I wouldn't want to be a brewer. Um, I kind of feel like... You have the beard for it. I do. Yeah, you you need to grow it out more. I need to grow it out more. it is a con- it's more of a constant grind and there's always a mash going and there's you know and it, but if something goes wrong you just make another one yes Whereas and you we, don't have vintage where yeah. you're working 18 hour days yeah um, yeah but yeah but we have these real peaks and valleys in the wine industry and mm-hmm. uh 
but I, I think that suits me more. I tend to happy to go a little crazy certain times a year and then have my time off where brewers just seem to be, like I said, it's more and or it's more of a constant grind and they have to be way more cleaner Super than we clean. than yes. we do. Super clean. Yeah. Wine um you can stomp wine by feet or with yeah. your feet and it'll still be delicious. Um you definitely can't do that with beer. The pH is wrong. You can't use uh, sulfur. Um, and and lots of people love them. sour beers. I am not one of those people. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan. Um, I mean, I've had, uh, there was one group of sour beers I had in South Carolina at a brewery called Birds Fly South. I went to a beer dinner on Valentine's Day hmm, with, a buddy, with a buddy of mine because yeah. <laughs> we were traveling through doing some wine sales. And uh, those were, if you ever get a chance, it's one of the hottest breweries in the South and the States. Again, birds fly south, and they uh, real understated. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had like a mango chili beer or something that I was okay. like, I was like, okay, what's this going to be? You know, I'm going to be, and I was wanted a second one, you know, which never happens with those kind of crazy. And everything he did was barrel aged, and it was treated like wine, so it was very understated and nice yeah. and soft and everything. But besides that, sour beers, yeah, you know, it's to it's like to me that's a wine fault. So yeah, I, I totally. I mean, you use plenty of lactic acid bacteria making wine um and we will eventually do something barrel aged but it'll be a big black beer more than likely um and we will ozone the hell out of those barrels yeah. sanitize the hell out of those barrels so that there's no <laughs> brett and and no uh steam no lactic acid steam is probably steam what we'll use probably... that's what damos got at elephant hill so. ah lucky him yeah all right man well, i'm gonna let you go we just knocked out oh, 55 minutes or so so nice. that was quick nice. and uh i'll let you get on to your your research and Thanks for doing it, man. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure. Cheers. Oh, how about Kraz? Smart guy, interesting guy. Really good to sit down with him and catch up with him. I was able to catch up with him again over the weekend. And uh, like I said, very great to have him back in Hawks Bay and doing some really, really important work here. Again, it's Crazy Bay Beers. Uh, I don't know the website offhand, but I guarantee Mr. Google will be able to help you out with that. But you'll find it at some local beers uh, pubs now around Hawks Bay. And I'm sure they have a website you can go on and try to get some from them. But, uh, and a couple wine. I think it's in New World in uh, Napier as well. So you can check that out. Uh, decibelwines.com guys We've got uh, the, uh, the wine club up there and of course the store we're shipping to Australia uh, doing a wine club there we're just getting that started so stay tuned for that uh, I will be uh, in Sydney soon and down in uh, Wellington Martinborough and Christchurch coming up so I'm going to be talking to some winemakers and folks in those areas I think it would be great to uh, try to catch up with some exciting uh, winemakers. Uh, so stay tuned for some people from Martinborough. Don't want to give it away too soon, but uh, I think you'll. Uh, there might be one revisited from a previous podcast and uh, somebody new. Try to get some some women on this podcast, uh, which I've got two coming up. So stay tuned, guys. Thanks a lot and cheers. Cheers.